John Kane, and this is Resistance Radio. I want to welcome you to the program. Uh, if you're listening in Washington, D.C. on WPFW, I'm happy to have you and I welcome you to the program. If you're listening on WBAI in New York City, again, happy to have you. And I hope you're supporting both WBAI and WPFW with your donations. Um, let me give you a pledge line for both stations, just so you, just so you know it. Uh, if you are listening in New York, the pledge line is 212-209-2950. Or you can go online to give to WBAI.org. If you're listening in Washington, D.C. on WPFW, their pledge number is 202-588-9739. Or you can go online to WPFWDC.org slash donate. Please support these stations. And I thank them for giving me a platform for our voices to be heard here. Look, the topic that I want to talk about today is uh, the title of what I'm calling it is uh, Our Solutions Are Not, or They Are Political and Diplomatic, They Are Not Legal. And I'm going to explain that a little bit. I talked about this a little bit in the past, but uh, I've got uh, some, some really good guests joining me this weekend, or this week, I should say. Um, so let me introduce, uh, I've got Ross John joining me. Ross is a former uh, Seneca Nation counselor. He is a Seneca Nation business person and somebody who I've worked closely with for, for many, many years. And I've also got Paul Delarone, Dagarundage, uh, who is joining me. And Paul's been a, a frequent guest on the program. And, um, and I'm happy to have both these guys, especially at the same time. Because one of the things that I'm, I'm trying to stress here is we are oftentimes told, this is how you have to get change made. You have to, you have to fight it, things in court. You have, to, you have to sue. You have to get injunctions. You've got to do all of these things. And frankly, the, the courts are not designed to deal with issues relating to sovereignty. So for us, we have to seek political solutions to the conflicts that we have with the states and with the federal government. And frankly, even beyond those, uh, those governmental institutions, sometimes it's, it's private sector. We've got to come up with solutions. And you know, I've dealt with this even in schools when we're dealing with, with, our, with our youngsters in schools and, and trying to resolve the conflicts that we experience, most of them tied to racism. Let's, <laughs> let's not beat around the bush. But we have to come up with political solutions, diplomatic solutions to these problems. And, you know, we just saw recently with the, uh, the challenge to the Indian Child Welfare Act, I listened to, to Native people just go on and on and on about how dangerous it was with this thing being challenged and that we, we stood to lose so much. And while I agree on one hand, we also have to be careful how we win. And I think that, that's, a, uh, that's an important thing to keep in mind. My good friend Peter Dorico, I posted his, uh, his blog up on my uh, Facebook group pages. If you get a chance, you should check those out. He, he talks about, frankly, being wary about how much to cheer about how we won, um, we won, who's, I'm even saying it, how, uh, how ICWA stood up uh, with, the, with the Supreme Court. Because understanding the way ICWA was, uh, was 
protected was by saying Congress has ultimate authority over us. And they have plenary powers. And, and that's what seven of those uh, Supreme Court justices argued was, yep, Congress has all that power to do whatever they want to do to protect Indians. Well, the problem is they pass laws that have nothing to do with protecting us. And we could argue how effective ICWA was. I think it did have some, some positive uh, uh, outcome. But it still kept states being the ones in charge with, with removing our children from, from families and then placing those children with families. All ICWA did was put some federal guardrails up to say, you've got to place a, pro a higher priority on Native kids being uh, placed in Native homes. Didn't happen all the time, and it didn't happen every time. But that's what the Indian Child Welfare Act... And, and there's a certain irony in the fact that, that the federal government passes, Congress passes this law as if it's somehow scolding the states for treating Native people badly, when it was the Congress that authorized the, the residential schools. And... It was Congress that authorized the res residential schools to have its relationship with state CPS, uh, Child Protective Services. And it was this unholy marriage between these, uh, these prison camps that were called schools and the Child Protective Services in each state, which took children out of those schools and placed them in white families. And then when they no longer needed to pull them out of residential schools, they're pulling directly out of, uh, out of Native households. So... There's a certain irony in, in somehow Congress, you know, being the entity that was going to somehow protect us. But that's, that's the way this thing plays out. But it doesn't just stop there. So, you know, and again, Ross, I'm glad to have you, you join me here because right now the Seneca Nation is in the throes of, a, of what's really probably going to be a, a dirty dogfight over the, the gaming compact that you that you somehow feel forced to you know, to uh, engage in with New York State because the federal law passed by Congress placed the placed the states in our gaming business. Right. You know, and, and I think what gets missed in all this is that gaming was never illegal for us. I mean, it, it and the Supreme Court in 1987 acknowledged that in the Cabazon case out in California, and then a little over a year later. Congress passes a whole set of laws to say, okay, now we're going to create framework, the, the legal framework for, for how gaming can be conducted legally. Right. Well, it was being conducted legally already. But they passed this law, which now gave them the ability to say, that's illegal and that's legal. That's right. <clears throat> they, it was legal, and they passed laws. Now it's, in some sorts, illegal to do it in certain ways. But Yeah, if you don't, if you don't right. enter into a gaming compact with the state, it violates the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act, right. which, 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 again, and this is the 800-pound the gorilla in the room, right? This is what all tribal councils, including the Seneca Nation one, is worried that if they don't lure the state to the table to enter into this, what is only supposed to be a regulatory framework, it's not supposed to be a revenue sharing or taxing or anything else, right. but they have to lure the state in to do this. At least that's the belief they have. There's nothing in the law that says that, but well, that's the belief that. it comes from, again, this uh, doctrine of discovery and then what you're talking about today is plenary powers that's kind of, that's derived directly from there, is that they believe that they have this authority to uh, make laws and, and do judicial procedures over us. What they never really understood when it came to the gaming uh, situation with Native people is that because we don't have economies, because we don't have banks, insurance companies, and places to hold 
or even sell product. Uh, we're a consumer. So every bit of a dollar we make goes to them. Even when we have certain businesses, we don't have enough businesses we to, feed, really, to really um, acclaim an economy. Their primary, um, they're the primary beneficiary, beneficiary of any economic activity that we do. And, and that's because no. the money comes in and goes out immediately. Right. And because they put this planetary powers uh, doctrine together in Congress and everybody else feels like they have this legal authority, which we, we know they really don't, is that there's no political solution. You can't even make that argument and point it out to them. There's how, no legal solution. How absurd. We can't it. Right, right. And you can't even make um, the observation that it's a racist policy. Well, and, and so to be clear here, the plenary powers doctrine was actually established by the Supreme Court. Right. It, it's the court that established this, this mythological power. And what they claimed was, and others would, would bolster this claim, was that the founding fathers of the United States wrote this into the Constitution, that Congress shall have the power over Native people. Of course, it doesn't say that anywhere. We're mentioned three times in the U.S. Constitution. One, the first place we're mentioned is that we're not a part of it. Right. That we're not going to be apportioned any congressional representation. Or, uh, we, you know, we aren't, they even refer to us as Indians not taxed. But they said, you know, three-fifths of a black man would be get congressional representation, but no representation because Native people are not a part of this. That's the first place we're mentioned. The second place we're mentioned is in the Treaty Clause, which is an executive authority. That's the President of the United States has the right to enter into treaties with foreign nations and with, with Native people, with Indian tribes, as it says there. Right. The third place we're mentioned is in the Commerce Clause, and this is the one that they rely on because it's, the Commerce Clause is a congressional power. It says Congress shall have the power to regulate commerce with foreign nations, among several states, and with Indian tribes. With. With, not of. Not over. And it doesn't say anything beyond commerce, but this, well, it's commerce. Commerce is everything. That's, and that's the argument that the Supreme Court and every... Frankly, native lawyers are making the same argument that, so, that they that they because commerce is so all inclusive about uh, in a capitalist system, right? That it's about everything that that the founding fathers of the United States intended for Congress to have the ultimate authority over the lives of native. So people. that wordsmithing with for <laughs> that difference over is the difference between them um, us not um, having the recognition of being. Uh, having any economic benefit to the regions or anything else that we have around us. And that's why we still lived in impoverished, impoverished situations. And still do. In right. So many but places. nobody, but then they won't allow the regulation change of banking and all the rest of these other kinds of things so that we can do it. Nobody will rewrite their lending policies. So disadvantage, disadvantage, disadvantage. So even when we do decide that we're going to take on a, a type of business or enterprise, it benefits some more, it's more beneficial to them than us as an economic driver. And they still want to micromanage. And they still won't because they won't look at it. Their bias is so deep and so corrupt and so racist that they can't even see it. Well, and, and, and again, so the claim that the plenary powers doctrine comes from uh, the, the Constitution is patently false, and they know it. Right. They know that it's false. In fact, they know that any authority they claim over us comes from the doctrine of Christian discovery, which is basically these papal bulls that came out in the in the 15th century uh, that basically said a Christian nation could um, could take 
whatever they wanted from pagan from pagan people. And that's where that's that's really what they built everything on. They built all of this the plenary powers doctrine, uh, land title issues, jurisdiction. Everything is built on that. None none of this is built off of the commerce clause of the U.S. Constitution. Right. So and now, now, Paul, you have been involved in several. Um, events throughout history, including taking land back. As I recall, um, you didn't buy it. <laughs> you didn't negotiate, uh, at least not initially, you didn't, you, you didn't sue for land. You were a part of, um, of, of a movement that reclaimed what would be known as Ganyanga territory. Yeah. And so mm. right out of, the, out of the gate, let's talk about why it was done the way it was done. Um, and why, I mean, because one of the things that happened was there was this, this whole thing about, um, the, the Indian commission, um, you know, the, what was the guy's name? Um, the, the report there, um, that the Indian commission did where he, he talked about how native people, uh, um, really had the right to the land and that kind of stuff. Yeah, every report. report. I'm sorry. Yeah. Every report. Um, so that had come to light around the same time you guys were doing this. And in many ways, we found out that the element um, of that hitting the, the media and the politicians is one of the reasons that they were somewhat stymied in how to deal with, uh, with the land takeover. But, but talk a little bit about Ganyange. Well, for us, when we planned what we were going to do, uh, we were very careful as to how much information got out there. And uh, we had a core group that um, decided how we would move on this because we looked at uh, previous uh, land takeovers and so on and uh, where they had somewhat of a success. And um, so we looked at that and uh, the thing is that in 1970, 71, um, Canada wanted dominion over our lands and wanted to us to become part of their uh, their so-called corporation or government citizenry, citizenry yeah, and yeah. that. And <clears throat> they had asked the queen, the crown, for uh, a flag. They started with a flag, and they said we'd like to have our own flag. And the queen says, "Well, you know, uh, you're all, you're everybody's entitled to a flag." So make one. So they they came up with uh, Maple Leaf, and so they used that as Canada's national flag. And so then they wanted a constitution. And the Queen says, well, every corporation has a right to a constitution, and uh, so make a constitution. So they made a constitution. But then the third step was they wanted dominion over the land and the people. Subjects. They the subjects, subjects and that. And the queen says, no, I can't give you that. They said, why not? She says, I cannot give you what is not mine. She says, so in order for you to get dominion over the land, then you have to get the native people to relinquish their title to their lands. And that you could convince them to enfranchise with your, your basically your corporation. And... Uh, so that's when they set up the Land Claims Commission. Well, I mean, just, let me just stop for a second, because 
it, it's kind of interesting. So in other words, the queen was not all in with the doctrine of Christian discovery, no. even though there were many people on the Canadian side that saw what the United States was doing yeah. and, and thinking, well, why do we need that? We've got this, you know, we've got this religious, you know, charter yeah. that, that allows yeah. us to do that. But you're saying the, the queen says, no, you still got some work to do with, yeah. with Native people. Yeah. That's interesting. And so, so we looked at all of these things and, uh, uh, we had just gone through, uh, you know, because the community I came from, um, you know, our our, our so-called uh, lands were being uh, overrun now by non-natives. And we, you know, we had at that time a population of maybe 7,000 of our own people, and we had 2,800 non-natives. Wow. And, uh, and uh, for generations, the people have talked about having the non-natives leave because what was happening was that young native families, you know, uh, wanted to build a home and they couldn't get a home because they had no land. And, um, but the land was being issued to non-natives. And- Now who was issuing it? Uh, this was Indian Affairs and the Bank Council was issuing these lands. And uh, they were also, there was a, it still exists in Canada right now, uh, bank councils are given so much money for housing, and uh, so maybe maybe my community they say, well, there's money for twenty houses. So a young man wanting to, he'd go to a community meeting and he'd request this uh, this help, and the people would be in attendance and say, yeah, give it up. But he had to go like three times to show that he was serious, and that. Uh, so he come three times, and they. You know, they said, yeah, give it to them. So there was these grants, and they started giving the grants. And all of a sudden, uh, the bank council decides, you know, um, we can't just keep giving grants, even though the money was already earmarked for it, for housing. And so what they did was they teamed up with a bank, well, a credit union called Desjardins, and they formed a, um, a, like a finance company, a loan company, and so now people, if they wanted, they had to go and get this loan through the bank. And that, but the monies that was in the bank was these grant monies, and that, and that's what the bank was using to loan money to uh, the natives. And that, and the interest rate on it was outrageous. And so, so people would thought, well, I have to go and I got to build a home. And so they were going for this loan. They did not realize that they were borrowing their own money and they were paying a high interest on it. It's still going on today. It's a racket. It's a scam. And, uh, and so, I mean, all these crazy things going on. And, uh, and so the thing is that the people were getting fed up because all our young families had to leave our community and go and live and rent houses on the outside. Meanwhile, the non-natives were all living in Ganawaga. Now, were they qualifying for some of these loans as well? The, the non-natives? Non the thing is, that was done under the table. And and they probably had money from but outside sources. But they probably sources. had big finance. Yeah. And the thing is, uh, the thing is, what happened was that uh, there was this guy clearing land, and uh, one of our one of our guys was passing, and he looks, he says, he saw him clearing the land and everything. So he thought maybe he was hired to clean this land. So he says, oh, you know, who are you working for? I said, I'm not working for anybody. Why? He says, you're here cutting trees and getting ready, you know, to build. He says, who's going to be building here? He says, I am. This guy is a 
totally French, <laughs> and that he and he's gonna be building, and that, and the guy says you can't build here, you're not native. He says, oh yeah, he says I got a band number. He pulls out his card. They gave him a band number, and that and he says and I got the grant to build my house. This guy was fuming because he knew so many of our people that had to live in then the neighboring communities. So he took it, and he took it to the longhouse, and that because there was no sense in going to bank houses. They're the ones that were involved in this. So he took it to the longhouse, and a meeting was called, and all the people got together, and they brought this thing up, and people said, "Enough is enough. These people got to go. You know, we got to bring our our children, our grandchildren back home, and that." And so, so uh, the people decided they were going to have this eviction. And uh, and so, uh, we we the young men we were given the task to deliver these notices. Knock on the door. Yeah, knock on the door and give them their notice. Say you got thirty days, you know, to vacate, and that uh, find yourself another place. You got to go. And uh, for, but a lot of them, after a, a week or so, a lot of them just left right away. And then there were others who were encouraged by the bank council, don't leave. You don't have to leave. These people have no right to tell you to leave. I mean. I mean, that was a ridiculous thing to say, but so the thing is that, so now the 30 days was up. So we went around and told them, said, 30 days is up. You know, you, you want to leave? We're going to help you leave. So we loaded their stuff in their trucks or cars or whatever. And take now take it to the edge and say, now you're gone. But there were others who were uh, leasing the lands and farming. And so they said, we can't do it in 30 days. So uh, they were told, well, go and uh, talk to the, the council, the old people, talk to them about it, and make an application to give, be given more time. So they knew, they were, a lot of them were farmers themselves, so they knew what it, it took. Because these guys had milking cows, and they had hay, they had all kinds of stuff, equipment. They had to, so they gave them a and, year. And there was harvest. Yeah, and they gave they gave them a year, and that but in that time they would have to find a farm outside so they can transfer all their stuff over there. It wasn't where no, that's thirty days is final. And you say somebody else was given the thirty days, and if they wanted more time, they had to just had to go and talk and explain their case. <clears throat> but the bank council wasn't going for it, and uh, and so uh, the bank council with the minister of Indian affairs. They went to the Canadian. Uh, the, they wanted the military to come in, and to to stop the men. They bypassed the RCMP. They went straight to the military. They went to the military, and the military says we can't go in there because that's not part of Canada. Okay, see, because our community was not declared a reservation, would never relinquish that. So then they went to the RCMP. RCMP told the same thing. That's not part of Canada. We have no jurisdiction there. So Quebec was in the process of trying to become independent. And so because our community was in the so-called boundaries of Quebec, they sent the SQ, which was uh, Quebec's uh, police, and uh, which is their military. Yeah. So they sent them. They came, and then uh, they didn't come in right away. They waited. Uh, when they knew most people were gone for supper and stuff like that, there may be about 10 of us left. Then they came in with the riot squad, and we had a big fight with them. And uh, and uh, so, watch it. We regrouped after, 
and that some of our people got taken off to jail. We regrouped and that. Then we went back right into the middle of the community where the police station was, where all the SQ were, and so on, with the local cops. And, that. and so we went over there, and we ripped the doors off the police station, and uh, we started to beat the hell out of them. They were trying to run away. We flipped most of their cars over. And that, you know, we had a riot, you know, and that, and the police left. And that, but then they came back a few hours later, like soldiers again, they're all carrying these high power weapons and everything coming in to assault us now. Because when they had their billy clubs, we easily got clubs and clubbed them, you know. Mm -hmm. So now they brought guns. And we didn't have AK 47s or M16s or anything like that. We had, 12 gauge, 410, 22, 30 out, 600 hunting yeah, guns. Yeah. So everybody went home and got their guns. Then we had a, 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 lot, a big standoff. And, uh, and in the end, they wanted to negotiate us, and they, they sent this, um, this sergeant with a couple of corporals or whatever they are, and they came to the longhouse to speak to uh, our, our council and that. And so... When these guys showed up and were making their presentation, we just looked at them and said, these are all the lowest guys on the totem pole. So we went outside, we got my cousin, he was only about 12 years old, we coached him. So after they made their presentation, he goes in and he says, um, I can't give you an answer to your request. He says, because I first have to speak to my superiors. And he walked out, they were insulted. <laughs> and we told him, what are you insulted for? This is what your government just did, insulted ours, you know, by sending you who have no power and all this kind of stuff. Said, Until you send us people who have authority, make can make decisions, we don't want to talk to you. So most, they, most people, now, most people don't know this. I mean, they know yeah. they know the Oka crisis. They know all that stuff that yeah. happens, you know, um, what, tw 20 years later. Yeah. But they're not, they're unfamiliar with this. And, and this is the tension. I mean, this seems like a long way to go to explain why yeah. you wanted to take land back, but this is some of the tensions that was existing not only between uh, the people and band council, but their reliance on the outside governments That's to, right. uh, to, to com com be complicit with them. Yeah. And so and now they send us guys who are their higher-ups in that. And so they came in, they said, well, uh, we have certain requests. We want you to uh, turn over all your weapons and uh, we want uh, everybody who's not from this community to leave and all that. Like, there was a lot of people who came from as far as Oklahoma, California, and that. We had Native people from all over North America that were there. There were like 5,000 people came to back us up. And so they said, uh, we want them all to leave and all this stuff. So we simply got up and said, like, listen, we're not giving you anything. You know, you want us to be defenseless so you can come in here and do what you please. No, that ain't going to happen. We ain't turning nothing over, not even a stick. And so, and we said, as far as all these Native people that have come to this place, they're our guests. They were invited. You're you, not. on the <laughs> other hand, are not. You've invaded. You get the hell out of here. You know, and then when they're ready to leave, they'll leave. And uh, And so... This is basically where we all went, and that. But the thing is, what happened already was there was a big divide in the community, and because you, you you did have a fair amount of band council loyalists there, yes, many of them tied to the churches and yes. that kind of stuff. So there's a pretty good divide there. Yeah. So now we were looking at the reality that we could have a civil war, 
and that and so uh we got together and we discussed it and we said look if we're all that willing to fight why stay here and fight with people who don't even understand what this is really about you know they've been so brainwashed and all that stuff we'll be fighting with people who don't know so if we're willing to fight let's fight our real enemy mm -hmm. let's fight either canada or let's fight the united states and uh and so we says let's just move avoid fighting with your brothers, your cousins, your, you know, your nephews, you know, you don't want to do that. So we knew that to get land, we're not going to make a land claim. That, that's going to drag and all this. We're not going to sue for it. That's going to drag in the courts. And, you know, and no matter what, we're not asking. This is ours. And so we organized. And um, so, so many months and every, every, like, like each week we were meeting so time so many times and we were putting our own monies into the till every time we met uh, it was like uh we'd all throw at least two dollars in to the pot some guys you know guys who were still like like doing iron work and that they throw in twenty dollars fifty dollars so the pot built up so we used that money to buy food equipment like uh tools and you know stuff like that and so when it was time getting close, there was one man who was on the council, and he kept insisting that we tell him where this land is. <laughs> and uh, he says, "I'm a royaner. I have the right to know." And uh, but we didn't want to tell nobody. Only four of us knew where the land was going to be. And uh, and so he kept insisting. So finally, we had a little talk. We said, "All right, let's tell him." We're going to Vermont. Two days later, it's on the radio that they recruited 250 extra state police and border patrol to watch the borders of Vermont because of our coming. And that, so while everybody was focused on Vermont, we went to New York State, went into Akwesasne, then from Akwesasne, we set out in four caravans. Different, one, different uh, routes. To get different routes, place. four directions, to at least one Caravan make it in. All four made it. And, uh, and uh, you know, and we knew this guy was so close with uh, RCMP all the time. They're always patting him on the back and tell him, oh, chief, you're a great asset to your people and all that. His head was... And the reason I'm, I wanted this story to be told is because there was no other way that you were going to um, reclaim land, um, especially, again, going back to the, 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 the Iqua case. One of the reasons they were able to throw out a lot of stuff is they said, oh, you as the plaintiff, you don't have standing. They would have said you guys didn't have standing because they, they would have either said you were you were Canadians. That's, that's as far as New York and the United yeah. States were concerned. They, they would have said that. Yeah. And so the, you didn't have any legal legs to stand on as in their system. In their system, right. It, uh, within, if, if there were ever an international law, if there was anybody who would, would solidly look at this thing, mm -hmm. You know, on a real moral issue, it'd be different. So you guys had to come up with a game plan that that wasn't any solution that they would ever ever have recommended. See, when we were now heading out, the day came to head out. One of the things is we sent a, a few runners to New York to the UN with a package to take to every every uh, consulate or whatever they call them. Mm -hmm. um, embassies. Embassies and that, to, to get to every one of the embassies that were there. 
and that, you know, stating very clearly what action we're taking, and we we had a manifesto made. We we did everything, and uh, and kind of explained, you know, what our plan is and so on. So at the we synchronized that that as we would get into this new land that we're gonna take back, and they would go to all everybody at the UN, so the world would know what we're doing, that it could not be blacked out. And so what we did was we didn't we didn't um, make a claim. We didn't do like everybody else talked about and that. What we did was we, it was a repossession. We just repossessed what is ours and that we weren't going to buy it because we're not going to buy what's already ours. And, you know, and we took our stand. We knew that we put ourselves in a very dangerous situation and that and People who did know what we were going to do, they kept saying, you, are, you know, you shouldn't do this. They're going to kill you. They're going to throw you in prison. You're going to be beaten and all that. But, you know, something, we went as families. We didn't go there as an army. We went as families. But you also went, having had these conversations at Grand Council. Yes. When it was determined that re reclamation of land was the highest priority. That's right. And that you were literally, the words that were spoken in English yeah. was that you were to get land back mm -hmm. by hook or by crook. See, the Grand Council did not pass that until after we took over the land. Oh, okay, all right. Okay? But the thing is, this project that we put together, it was a Rutishkoragete project. And we went locally, then we went as all the Mohawks, then we took it to Grand Council. And we, we, we asked for the support of everybody. And everybody, um, everybody was in favor of it, but the thing is, Grand Council wouldn't sanction anything because they wanted to know where the land was. But we weren't about to tell them either. And now, because we know we have informants in every corner of our homes, you know? And so we, uh, they said, well, if after you take over the land, if we find out then that this is within your ancestral territory, then by all means, we'll back it up. So... Once they knew that we, this land was within Ganyaga, then they supported it. And, uh, and it was only because of what we were able to do by getting land back and, and uh, how we got the support of the people and everything. That's when Grand Council set up what they called the Land Claims uh, uh, land, land Rights Committee. Okay? And I was one of the ones that was appointed to that. And our instruction was to work to get our lands back by any means, by hook or by crook, they said. And you know, the thing is, we were the only ones that ever got the land back. Everybody else, nobody did nothing. And that, But certain individuals were trying to use that, you know, that appointment uh, to start trying to negotiate with, uh, with uh, provincial, state, and federal governments. And that, but, you know, for us, we, all we used was the Ohade, the Tulo. Okay, and we only our constitution, Gayanrit Goa, that's what we use. We didn't use any U.S. law, state law, or anybody's law. We no just, U.N. stuff, there nothing. was no U.N. declaration no, no, back then, none no, of that stuff. Then. No, yeah. we weren't even going to them either, because the thing you is, informed we, them, but we did was inform them, and we're, we're saying to them, this is what we're going to do, and that's it. So now, they try to sue us. And that, you know, they're giving us notice that we have to appear in court and all this stuff. So a lot of people met and we said, well, we're not going to court, you know. So we sent uh, a lawyer with a, as a runner 
to the court. And we said, and it was that, you know, the lawyer goes in and says, no disrespect, but the people of Ganyanga are not coming. On the grounds, you know, on the grounds you have absolutely no jurisdiction over them. This court has no jurisdiction. And this is their, this is their New York State Supreme Court now. And so the judge was Judge Port. And so they had court alone. And they lost. And the judge the judge ruled against the, the judge, the judge ruled, ruled against the judge the, the judge's rule was that the United States of America, the state of New York, the county of Webb, the town of Eagle Bay, Big Moose, no one has any jurisdiction over the people of Ganyanga because they're part of the Mohawk Nation, part of the Iroquois Confederacy, therefore enjoy sovereign immunity. And then when we moved from that land because we wanted our community to be an agricultural community, but the growing season was so short in the land we took over, but we took over that land because for defensive purposes, it was great. And was there was nobody to run out of there. there was, it was abandoned. There were, yeah, and there was, you know, because our fight wasn't with the everyday citizen. Our fight was with the institutions called governments. Mm -hmm. and, that, and so our project wasn't going to work, so we made it clear to the state and to the feds is that we're moving from here. Uh, we're going to move to one from one part of our house to another, and that. But we are not relinquishing claim to any, any of this, place, yeah. and that. And so that's when we moved north. Even though it was north, the climate and the land was better because now acid rain and the short growing season, we were right in a snow belt. You know, you uh, potatoes never got ripe. They were always little green balls, <laughs> smaller than golf balls. Yeah, Big Moose <laughs> is a tough area. It's yeah, a, it's the lower Adirondacks, yeah. but it's right off of that coming off that Tug Hill Plateau yeah. area. Yeah. And so when we moved up to near near Plattsburgh, up in Clinton County, and that, uh, at first they were trying to give us land. They said, okay, uh, if you leave this, we're going to give you this other land. It's at this place called Mud Lake. And uh, <laughs> I remember see I actually went there. <laughs> but uh, we looked at the map and said, is that land available? They said, yeah. Then we said, give it back to the Oneidas. <laughs> <laughs> we said, they said, well, all our information we fed into the computer is this is what it came up with. So Garuhiakdad just says, well, he says, um, let us feed your computer. And the computer will come back and tell you that there's 6 million acres of uh, unoccupied Mohawk land. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so they knew that they, they were not dealing with the people they're used to dealing with, like tribal or band council and all that, because we, we were hard line. And we held our ground and we wouldn't give up anything. And so in the end, after 250 some odd negotiation meetings, and that, they finally said, all right. They said, how can we help you? We said, the only thing you can do for us is stay the hell out of our way. They said, we can give you trailers like they did to the yeah. United. Yeah. And we said, no, we don't want anything. Yeah. They, were, they wanted to give those old FEMA trailers. Yeah. And that kind of stuff. yeah. So we wouldn't accept anything. We said, we don't want anything from you. And now we'll do it ourselves or with, uh, with uh, people who are our friends. And, that, and so that's how we moved in that. And look, today, they, it's going to be uh, 50 years. Yeah, it's I, I, I wasn't sure if it was over 50 yeah. years. But May, yeah, 50 May 13, so. 1974. 50 years later, yep, the community still exists. It still exists. It's got its own school. It's got its own clinic. It's got uh, uh, greenhouses, uh, maple syrup operation. They raise buffalo, Highlander beef. Uh, they put acres and acres under cultivation and uh they have a gas station, a smoke shop.
They got uh, a bingo, facility, super, yeah. super bingo, and they've got uh, slot machines. And without no compact, without no permission from anybody, and that, and um, we're moving forward. Well, and and the reason I think that this story is important, and the reason I wanted to bring this one up specifically, is because again. Nobody gave you a roadmap. Nobody oh. said, okay, you need some sort of administrative remedy to your claim and, and here's what you're gonna do. You're gonna you're gonna file a suit, you're gonna you're gonna you know bring some sort of legal action. And we know that, that never that never goes well for us. Yeah. And in fact, even in situations like with the ICWA case, when we once we supposedly win, we lose. And we've seen this, and we've seen this play out in land claims too. Land claims were where people got to have the land in title, but not in name only, but not have any use for the land. Right. And in fact, there was a there's an ir irony in all of this is that in Aquasasne, just over the last few years, they've been offered money to settle some land claim disputes, and people ooh and ah when they hear when they they hear oh a hundred fifty million dollars, right. and I, I had to remind people in Aquasasne, the Senecas give that to the state every year. They give they give uh, two hundred million dollars to the state. I'm not saying it's a good idea. But you know, I'm just but, ask you, what the hell's wrong with the Senate? I don't know what the hell's wrong. The, with the, don't brag yourself. <laughs> <laughs> but for anybody to to be enamored by this amount of money that that the uh, you know these yeah. counties of the state is offering, and it's the same thing we've so, we've seen it with the Cobell suit. We saw it when the Navajo were suing over being screwed out of uh, out of uranium mining and and other mineral resources. We see it. We see it now with with the with the Navajo um, losing in the Supreme Court over water rights. I mean, these systems are not designed to be um, moral, to be uh, to, to have integrity. They are, and and I always say this: even when we have Native people who are who are lawyers, or working for the state, or working for the federal government, they still have the national interest of the United States right. uh, as as their key. Um, you know, driving, you know, priority. Yeah. And so it, it, we're always, even when somebody might look like us, they're, they're on the other side. Yeah. And so whether it's Deb Haaland or whether it's, you know, I've, I've seen some native judges. I mean, Diane Humatiwa, when she got appointed for a federal judgeship in, um, uh, in Arizona, they said, oh, yeah, she should be the next Supreme Court nominee. The first case she heard, which was a, which was a, a highway that was going to run through native lands, she ruled against Native people. So, I mean, these are not, we don't win by having one of our people working for the other side. Right. You know, it's not the blood of the person that does the thinking. It's the brain. And so they think by putting Native blood on the bench that there's things that are good, good for Native people. No. I, don't, I don't even think they believe that. I think, I think what they believe is that we will see that and that will that will somehow subdue us. I, here's here's my observation: is that I don't think that we realize that um, there's no place for our culture, our system, our decision making, our community our in our future in those legal um, with those legal parameters because they were put in place first to erase us, mm -hmm. and so that's why you know everybody's trying to figure out this way. How do we have community discussions? Or do we go back to clans? Do we go back to some kind of formation of how do you get the things on? What do we want for our children? What do, how do, we, do we want to educate them? What do they want them to be? What kind of economies do we need? What kind of housing? Those decisions that aren't coming down from some agency. Because theirs' legal structure has no 
understanding of what the will or t it takes the decision making and the humanity away from the community and their decision making. You see, like Ganyanga, we did what we did. And uh, and the thing is that I tell people everything we wanted to do, we didn't get to do. You know, but the fact of the matter was there was certain things that we set out to do. One was to get land back. We were successful. Two is that we were not going to allow any law, jurisdiction in there that wasn't ours. We were not going to allow outside religions into our community. And that, um, that we were going to strive towards self-sufficiency. Those were the main things. And, you know, I, I'd say, like, uh, we, we went, like, 60% of the way, success, okay? But I can't say that anywhere else, you know? And the thing is, it's kind of like, it's a shame, as I travel around what we call Rodinoshuni territory, and uh, our young people don't know about this place. It's kind of like, uh, like it, does, it doesn't exist. Right. And, uh, and they should know about it. Well, but, but some of that had to do with, with the people who ultimately still live there. I think they liked it being quiet. And, and so rather than it serving as the example that for those of you who began this whole project that wanted to have an example that others would do, uh, yeah. do again and again, it was, it's never been repeated, at least not in, certainly not in that way. No, not in that way. Uh, but I've been uh, working with other people they're not Rodinoshuni people, but they're uh, Anishinaabe and so on. And they've gone and repossessed land. Uh, you know, uh, Crees and uh, Chippewas and so on. And they've been at it for years. And our people don't know about it. Yeah. You know, and uh, they took like thousands of acres. What they call the Lavarandre Park up in northern Quebec. The, the, the Anishinaabe just went back in and took it. And start building their homes and so on. They're living very simple lives. And uh, they're doing the best they can. And in fact, I was up there two years ago when they, the people put a stop to moose hunting. No more mm -hmm. sport hunting and all that. So we went up there and that. And one of the reasons they asked me to come up was uh, to explain to uh, wampum belts. Like the one they were really interested in was the dish with one spoon. Mm -hmm. And that, uh, we in our language, we say the And that. Uh, and so... I went up there, and I started explaining that. It was mostly older women were sitting there, some young women, children, a few old guys, and, that. and I was explaining. This was during the time we were stopping the moose hunters, and that. So as I was explaining this dish with one spoon, and, that, and what it meant, and the old lady was sitting there. She doesn't understand a word of English. She only speaks her language, but her granddaughter was translating. All of a sudden, the old lady goes, now I remember. <laughs> says, this, this young man reminded me. And this is what my grandmother told me. And then she pulls out the belt. The belt. <laughs> they had the belt, but they didn't know what it meant anymore. Mm. And as a young girl, she heard it. And all of a sudden, like, my explaining brought it all back to her. So it made me wonder how many of our people have stuff that they were told, but it's how to unlock their memory, to let it free, because it's been so, uh, what's the English word? Suppressed. Uh, or suppressed. down, yeah. Yeah, and that. Because it wasn't that long ago, those Anishinaabe, 
there's a road that went through their land. They couldn't go 150 yards near that road or they would have been arrested. Mm -hmm. They were supposed to be out of sight, out of mind, and uh, non-natives could travel there freely and do the logging and mining and so on and so forth. And that, and these people, I mean, it was horrible. And the thing is, where I come from, people don't remember. Before, if we left Kahnawaga, we had to have a coin or a piece of paper saying we had permission. If we didn't have that coin or that piece of paper, we would be arrested. You know, it's not that long ago. People think that's history. It's just like when they talk about residential schools, like the mush hole here, you know. And people think it's such a historical thing. No, there's people alive who went through that, you know, horrifying experience. Well, and we hear about sundown laws, right? <laughs> um, where, where black people were told that you've got to be out of town before sundown. That existed here. I mean, Ross, That's I right. know you yep. tell me stories, though, yeah. that if you were caught in Gowanda when you were young, I don't want to say what you were doing in Gowanda when you were young, but uh, if you got caught in Gowanda, you were, you were run out of town the, about, about the time sunset. That was it. But I remember even my uncles telling me that they couldn't have a car unless they went to the town of Branton or someplace and, and got uh, basically a, a license or a permit to even apply for it. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, and, and that's, that's why I say when you understand the systemic racism that exists in everything from the laws that they, that they, they write and they pass to the way they're enforced, to the, uh, the judges and the politicians, every one of them. So we can't follow the system that they offer up. Because they, they, will, because tell, they will tell you that... Because we, we don't understand that system. Every time we talk about their system, we say, well, legal this and illegal that and everything. The thing is, it's not about legal or illegal. It's about what's right, right and what's wrong. wrong. So it's what you need. Yes. What, what you made up your mind, yeah. even if it's about changing a direction. Yeah. It's about something that you see, you understand, and, but even, and you even, as a people want to do. But the lawyers that get hired, I mean, and I'll oh. go right back to the to the Seneca Nation lawyers. They'll tell you to your face, the system is wrong. That right. It's unfair. It's racist. But this is the way you have to do it. So I don't know how they can it's speak to It's the way your they face. have to do it. It's not the way we have to do it. Oh, exactly. It's the lawyers have to do it that way because they pledge their allegiance. Well, and, and you know, getting back to, to gaming, for instance. We've been doing some variety of, of gaming business since the 70s. And maybe before that. But I know, for, I know since the 70s. It, whether they were small bingo halls right. that weren't much bigger than the church or the Legion bingo halls. And, and then pull tabs, uh, scratch offs, and, and you know, all, these, all these other things. That, and, and ultimately, just to slot machines. You know, so when they say, when they pass a law that says, okay, here's the... Uh, statutory framework uh, for how legal native gaming can take place. Legal native gaming had to been taking place all along, right. but they they create this thing and then they do the, do the unthinkable because the, what we have been fighting for all along before before they passed this law in 1988, the biggest obstacle that we faced was pushing the state out of our businesses, Look, out of our territory. I and think that one of the biggest travesty is us ourselves because. For the Senecas is that we put uh, two hundred million dollars a year in our annual budget in supporting a system that was brought to us by them. Their education, their housing programs, their law enforcement, their governments, their social service programs, and all those. We don't have a say in it. 
even when we sit here and say, that doesn't work. We're always saying, you know, that doesn't work. That doesn't work. That doesn't work. And it's just an institution to kind of, so people can have paychecks, but it's not about nurturing the, the you're, problem you're or, or You're financing your own demise. Yeah. Yeah. And you're, you're essentially become complicit in your own demise. So, because of what, what and we seem paralyzed to say, let's take that money and let's, do we want to grow our own food? Do we want to feed ourselves? Is that something that we want to do, but or the, do we want to? No, but the thing, or do we want our they, own education system look, that teaches culture? And all us, this? You can't. Yeah. Our people, everything we talk about, oh, you can't. Right. You can't. When we were planning to go into the mountains and take that land, everybody told us you can't. Even the lawyers were saying, "Oh, you can't." Yeah. There was only one lawyer who supported what we were going to do, and he was a separatist lawyer. Right. You know, and he was saying, yes, you have every right to do what you're Look, doing. I, I, I remember, and I don't want to go into a whole nother. I remind people all the time is that when people talk about all the great victories that the Senecas and Mohawks and everybody had during the tax battles, it was, it wasn't the government. It was always the people. It was the people. Yeah. And it was really a few of us who were always right. at the, at the uh, and, crux of all that. And we had to battle those same attorneys and yeah. lobbyists and everybody else. They yeah. said, oh, you can't do that. Well, you can't we, do we it We even that had way. to convince our own people that the stance we're taking isn't just to make a better deal. That's right. It's, to, it's because we want it all. We right. want our economies. We, want our, we, wa we are fighting for our rights, not for what a better position than what than we had. Well, back then, we made it very clear there is no deal to be made. No right. deal to be made. We do not have the right. But we had to convince our own people that. <laughs> we didn't have the right to negotiate the birthright of our children and uh, and this land. It's, it's not ours. It's not something we possess. We're part of the land. We don't own the land. Well, guys, we chewed up an hour. <laughs> so let me first, first off thank you guys for joining me here and, and having this discussion. What we talked about here is something that has probably never been on the radio in Washington, D.C. or New York City um, or, you know, frankly, scarcely anyplace else. I know we've talked about this stuff, and oftentimes we find ourselves doing the proverbial preaching to the choir. We tell each other the same stories over and over again, and I'm glad we had a chance to share some of these with, uh, with listeners. It's important that people know that we are fighting for our autonomy every single day. We aren't trying to be um, assimilated. We aren't trying to follow the, the path of indoctrination. And we're still fighting the doctrine of Christian discovery and this supremacy doctrine that, uh, that these courts are, are still trying to uphold. So I want to thank everybody for listening. Um, I'm John Kane. This is Resistance Radio. And we'll see you next week. Yahweh. Yeah. Yeah.